You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. We want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, particularly our Augur and Excavator level patrons. A very special thanks to Danielle, Lauren, Christopher, Colin, Maggie, and Peggy. Your generosity will go down in history. Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can be. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, known as the WCTU, was founded in 1874 during the midst of one of the most severe economic depressions in American history. The market crash and depression that began in 1873 and lasted until 1877 was remembered as the depression until it was overshadowed by another depression in 1893 and then, of course, the Great Depression in the 1930s. During the panic of 1873, the religious revivals or awakenings, as historians like to call them, of the earlier 19th century were still in full swing. Enormous urban revivals swept the United States in the mid-1870s and introduced new generations to Protestant evangelism. Today's episode is going to highlight the religious underpinnings of women's reform movements of the late 19th century in America, with particular emphasis on the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the quite radical Protestant Christianity that many white and black women in the 19th century utilized to push for women's rights. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, or WCTU, quickly became the largest women's organization in the United States during the 19th century and grew to over 200,000 members by 1892. Historian Catherine Kish Sklar describes the WCTU as being sort of a woman's church to its many members, with all the ceremonial trappings of ritual processions, symbolic regalia, and hierarchical lines of authority. Temperance societies, or organizations that advocated against the production and consumption of alcohol, had existed for decades before the formation of the WCTU, but women always played secondary or auxiliary roles in those organizations. In fact, at a convention of temperance societies in New York in 1852, Susan B. Anthony rose to speak, but was informed that the ladies were there to listen, not to take part in the proceedings. What made the WCTU different and arguably more successful was its female membership, its loose organization, and the dynamic skills of its second president, Frances Willard. The WCTU became an enormous organization that joined Protestant religion with social reforms intended to raise the status of women in the family. The abstention from alcohol served as the base of the movement, but the organization championed a variety of concerns that affected women, including sexual exploitation, domestic violence, labor concerns, social reforms, and women's political empowerment. Historians disagree as to how this movement played out in the larger growth of American feminism and women's rights. Scholars such as Barbara Epstein argue that movements like the WCTU acted as a stepping stone for women to engage and champion women's suffrage and women's rights. 
Elaine Franz Parsons sees the women of the WCTU embodying a radical conservatism that championed women's rights and suffrage not as a way towards gender equality, but as a way to return to protected and safe domesticity, free of the danger that drunken violent men could pose to the domestic sphere. I follow in the middle, and I see the Protestant Christian bent of the WCTU and the reforms it championed as an avenue for more political engagement for women. And that naturally leads to more gender equality, even while promoting the conservative protection of the domestic realm, which was traditionally prescribed to white Western women. So it's this really interesting movement of radicalism in pursuit of conservative values. WCTU members were, they were out speaking in public, holding huge rallies, and doing things like demanding votes for women and the end of a judicial system that set a double sexual standard for men and women. So pretty radical stuff during the period, really. Absolutely. The ties between Protestant evangelicalism during the Second Great Awakening of the 19th century and the rise of feminism is a pretty well-worn topic. Many scholars argue that the rise of popular evangelicalism, particularly the growth of Methodism and the revivals of Charles Grandison Finney, supplied the moral outrage and religious fervor that empowered women to act publicly through voluntary and reform organizations. This, in turn, collectively taught women skills in public speaking, fundraising, and organization management that propelled them into the public sphere and politics. Scholar Nancy Hardesty has gone so far as to term this movement as evangelical feminism. However, the revivals of the later 19th century have been cast as sort of an anti-progressive revivalism that buttressed traditionalist ideas about gender and undermined earlier evangelical movements towards greater gender equality by idealizing domestic motherhood and denouncing public women. The religious evangelicist Dwight Lyman Moody held gigantic revival meetings across the Northeast during the 1870s. Um, and one little interesting tidbit, during the Civil War, Moody was involved with the United States Christian Commission of the YMCA to preach and pass out Bibles to Union soldiers. And you may remember that our favorite guy to hate, Anthony Comstock, was also a member of the Christian Commission. Now, there's no indication that Moody and Comstock met, but it's just still kind of an interesting yeah. little sidebar that, you know. And I was going to say that, the you know, the this point of this um, about some evangelical feminism sort of buttressing traditional ideas and denouncing public women reminded me of Victoria Woodhull and sort of the pushback oh gosh, against yes. Victoria Woodhull. Yes. So I mean, like lots of interconnections oh, totally. here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, a, a big chunk of, especially the ones that I do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, all these like characters moving in and out. I'm a right? little, yeah. But <laughs> anyway. Um <laughs> So, yeah, so over 2 million Protestant Americans of all denominations attended Moody's revival meetings. Um, he preached adherence to traditional interpretations of the Bible, enjoining his listeners to have a quote-unquote childlike faith and interpret the Bible literally. He abhorred metaphysics, science, and those that questioned the divine inspiration of the scriptures. He cautioned against uh, social activism and preached, quote, I have noticed that when a Christian man goes into the world to get an influence over the world, he suffers more than the world does. So basically he's saying, stay in your lane. Don't mm -hmm, don't go out mm -hmm. to, you know, Sodom out there or whatever. Right. So he also believed, Moody also believed that charity work was wrong and insisted that beggars should be allowed to die off. So for Moody, individual, not societal reform was, was everything. Sounds like a, a really great guy. <laughs> Listening to this, one would think uh, that the millions of people who went to hear Moody speak would agree with everything that he said. And in fact, a large majority of the people who did hear him speak were women. However, historian Edward Bloom argues that the rhetoric Moody espoused did not match the realities of the late 19th century women who supposedly supported him. Instead, more than ever, Gilded Age women pushed the boundaries of their prescribed religious and gender roles into an ever-expanding public sphere. Interestingly, Frances Willard worked closely with Moody during the mid to late 1870s and spoke on the revival circuit with him. 
she and other female evangelicals who worked with him did not exemplify the rhetoric that Moody espoused. Willard acted publicly and politically through temperance reforms and did not interpret the Bible literally. In fact, many of the women leaders of the 1870s revivals were not the quote-unquote praying mothers that Moody preached women should be, but were leading very public careers and actively challenged traditional understandings of gender and women's proper roles. Frances Willard was the president of the WCTU from 1879 to 1898, and she became a household name. She was the first woman to have her statue placed in the Capitol, and that was put there in 1905. Numerous scholars have pointed out that Willard conformed to the ideology of what scholar Barbara Welter has called the cult of true womanhood, which prescribed an ethos of piety, purity, and submission to motherly domesticity. Willard cast herself as a noble maid called reluctantly from her domestic duties to the podium only because her female sympathy impels her to speak for the helpless and the weak. However, as charismatic and successful as Willard was in leading the WCTU to massive success, this was not a one-woman show. Thousands of middle-class women across the country joined local WCTU chapters and supported Willard and the organization in its reform efforts. Also, one of the reasons the WCTU was so successful was because local WCTU chapters had the freedom to champion causes that were near and dear to them. So naturally, some chapters were more progressive in their politics than others, but this freedom also helped solidify the WCTU as a national women's powerhouse. However, Frances Willard was one of the most able politicians to lead a major women's movement. Whether you view her as a champion of women's rights or a harbinger of conservative gender norms, she was a political force to be reckoned with. Her goals were radical, and she was a lifelong champion of women's suffrage, but in an era where women were not full participating members of the body politic, Willard's rhetoric and actions appealed to contemporary understandings of proper gender roles, which allowed her to bring her goals into mainstream acceptance. Willard stepped beyond the singular focus on curbing alcohol and through her do-everything policy, championed a plethora of reforms to further promote the march towards women's suffrage. Often, women's reform work and the fight for suffrage are treated as separate movements, when in reality, they were very closely related. Women's political action through reform work and the fight for suffrage are often treated as like different types of politics in much of the literature. So for example, women's suffrage and the abolition movement were connected from their earliest beginnings. However, many reform organizations like the WCTU, whose main priority was not initially women's suffrage, eventually supported supported women's enfranchisement as one way to push forward their primary reform goals. So we even without the vote, the very act of reform work in charitable and voluntary organizations allowed women to enter the, you know, political sphere, so to speak. Right, exactly. The women's temperance movement began in Hillsboro, Ohio in 1873. Many women of Hillsboro, led by Eliza Jane Thompson, banded together in groups to visit local saloons, pray, and ask saloon keepers to pledge to stop selling alcohol. The movement spread rapidly with these types of crusades happening across the country. So interesting that they use the word crusade. I just had a very interesting conversation with a medievalist. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, um, a friend of the podcast actually named Melanie Maddox, who teaches at the Citadel. Um and it's just really, she was talking about the different places where you see the term crusade pop up and yeah. how people often sort of don't actually engage with what crusades really were in, you know, in their actual context. So yeah. now every time I see the term crusade, I'm like, oh, that's very interesting. So, I mean, uh, I mean, a crusade is actually like going out and conquering, right? Well, the crusades were sure. like the holy wars to like... I mean, I'm not in any way close to being an expert on this, but <laughs> specifically to conquer Muslims. Sure. And to control... I guess I'm thinking more of like the dictionary defi definition, though. Does it still have it's... a Christian connotation? Like, oh, is yeah. It cruci oh, okay, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. Always... Oh, okay. Right. And so like a lot right. of places where you see the terminology of crusades today has to do with like a Christian sort of conquering of something. Right. Right. Well, so like, which, which uh, exactly is why they used it in this right. context for sure. Yeah, exactly. This kind of religious 
So when you're crusade. saying you're on a crusade to make people's syllabi conform to a certain yeah, standard, like... <laughs> you're probably using the word wrong. Probably, probably, probably not realizing the I connotations. I should take that out of my <laughs> my everyday speech. Well, I mean, saying. it is part of our everyday speech now, but it's interesting. I think now part of the concern that, that Melanie was talking about is the way that it's been adopted by very like masculinist white supremacist groups as a way of like reclaiming something from mm-hmm. you know brown people and muslim people or whatever anyway so it's just interesting it's just interesting that they called it a crusade that's all i'm saying okay <laughs> so um this is just a side note here but although the wctu archives place the founding of that organization in hillsborough ohio there is actually evidence that the saloon crusades actually started about 60 miles south from where we are currently recording this podcast in fredonia new york yep so i say that we say that it's from fredonia not ohio so much stuff happens right yeah there, exactly that's this why we should claim it of like it is yeah. we started everything okay. i shouldn't we're, say that neither one of us are from here <laughs> that's true <laughs> we claim we're it, buffalonians though. now though so uh either way regardless of whether it was ohio or fredonia <laughs> these saloon crusades are attributed to diocletian lewis a man with an honorary medical degree and the best name ever yes an honorary medical degree I know, right? from I, the homeopathic hospital, which it just makes it even worse. I know. And, you know, it was like, that's not that's not important to put in there. But I had to. Yes. No, and, it's so great. But I'm also thinking, too, about like during this time, there's there's these huge wars or arguments between like the, the homeopathists yes. and like the medical doctors and right. the regulars and da, da, da. And mm-hmm. so. And there is, you know, all of these things are very tied up together, right? Mm-hmm. Like homeopathy is like somehow tied into ideas about women's rights and suffrage and spiritualism. Like they mm-hmm. all just are kind of lumped in together. So so Diocletian with his fake medical degree from a fake <laughs> hospital oh, college. No, you better not. We're going to get all the homeopathy, the air case. guitar of medicine. Shush. All right. Um, So Diocletian, you know, regardless of his fake degree, mostly made his living on the Lyceum circuit. Why is it it called Lyceum? I don't know, know, but it was just like a lecture circuit, right? Yeah, yeah. I think a Lyceum. Oh, a Lyceum is is a lecture hall. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. What a dumb question. That's why, like, at Lilydale, which is near Fredonia, there is, they have a Lyceum. The Lyceum Mm -hmm. or something, Yeah. yeah. One of his speeches, which he gave over 300 times across the country, was a temperance lecture on, quote, the duty of Christian women in the cause of temperance. He told the story of his mother, who, in response to his father's chronic drunkenness, gathered a group of women in his hometown of Auburn, New York, right near where I went to college, and convinced the local saloon to stop selling liquor through prayer and moral suasion. According to Lewis, the women were successful and the saloon keeper closed his bar. Mm-hmm. After, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> After Lewis would give this speech, he would ask the women in the audience to do the same. And in 1873, women began banding together in saloon crusades, going into bars, and standing outside of them in prayer. Within three months, groups of praying women had driven the liquor business out of 250 villages and cities. The first WCTU National Convention was held in Cleveland, Ohio in 1874, and it drew roughly 300 women from 16 different states. That's a pretty big deal in 1874, right? From this first meeting, women controlled the organization, and men were never allowed to be voting members of the WCTU. The convention elected a board with Annie Wittenmeyer as president and Frances Willard as corresponding secretary. Willard became president in 1879, and the focus of the WCTU shifted from one concentrated on closing saloons to an ambitious do-everything campaign, although it should be pointed out that the WCTU had begun to expand its scope even before Willard had had become president. But within 10 years, the WCTU sponsored more than 35 areas of public activism, such as prison reform, public health, and improved working conditions for laborers. And because of the decentralized structure of the organization that I mentioned earlier, individual chapters were able to really focus their efforts on causes that were near and dear to their hearts. 
Many black women leaders in the 1880s and 1890s were active in the WCTU's Department for Work Among Negroes, as well as within their own chapters. As head of that department between 1883 and 1890, writer and reformer Frances Ellen Watkins Harper launched a broad national program of improvements for African Americans. Harper's advocacy centered on racial and gender uplift. She became the only black woman on the WCTU's executive committee and board of superintendents. She was also the superintendent of the colored branch of the Philadelphia and Pennsylvania chapters of the WCTU from 1875 to 1882, and the director of the Northern United States Temperance Union from 1883 to 1890. Harper was a co-founder and also vice president of the National Association of Colored Women from 1895 until the year of her death in 1911. Although she later criticized the WCTU as racist, she was a staunch advocate of temperance, and her politics infused her literary endeavors. She upheld temperance as one of the pillars of racial uplift throughout the pages of her best-selling novel, Eola Leroy. Harper was a pioneer in her writing, oration, and advocacy for temperance, suffrage, and equal opportunity, but she was hardly alone in her quest for gender and racial equality. The WCTU, particularly in the South, um, where white women might want to reach across the color line for mutual social benefits, nevertheless operated in a world where true racial partnership was out of the question. Throughout the 1890s, the WCTU organized multiple quote-unquote colored women's groups that were controlled by the local white women's organization with the goal of quote-unquote, uplifting the black community under white guidance. This prompted black women in North Carolina to organize the WCTU number two, which was, uh, which other black women replicated across the South. Essentially, the number two organizations answered directly to the national WCTU, apart from local white woman control. The decentralized nature of the national WCTU enabled black chapters to shape to the needs of their communities, not just fulfilling the needs of national or white reformers. Chapters were able to direct their energies where they saw fit, which allowed black WCTU chapters to concentrate on projects that benefited uh, African Americans in their communities. Although most WCTU chapters were segregated, especially in the South, white and black women both attended national meetings, and black women, like Naomi Anderson of Wichita, were hired as national organizers. Historian Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore highlights how in the early to mid-1890s, African Americans held political sway in North Carolina. However, the visibility of an upwardly mobile black middle class instigated a counter-response among upwardly mobile white supremacists, quote-unquote, new Southern men. These white Democrats launched a gendered campaign in 1898 to retake power, which built on racial hysteria over purported unpunished rapes of white women by black men. This served to overcome white class divisions in favor of racial solidarity, and it worked to disenfranchise black men by 1898. Thereafter, black women found a new opportunity for entrance into the political realm as quote-unquote diplomats to the white community through organizations like the WCTU. Gilmore argues that black middle-class women seemed less threatening than black men in an era of heightened post-reconstruction racial violence and therefore could more easily lobby in public for new progressive era benefits and reforms. This expanded black women's entrance into politics through Christian groups like the WCTU, civic clubs, and public health campaigns. Because the WCTU was such a large organization, there were many competing demands among the women within its membership. As Willard attempted to grow WCTU membership in the South, she made moral compromises when it came to issues of race and segregation. Famously, Willard and reformer journalist Ida B. Wells had a very public debate over Willard's lackluster support of Wells's anti-lynching campaign. In 1890, Willard was quoted as saying, Better whiskey and more of it is the rallying cry of great dark-faced mobs. The safety of women, of children, of the home is menaced in a thousand localities. Ugh. Yeah, I know. That's terrible. Not a good look, Francie. Not a good look. 
Wells went on to write that Willard, quote, unhesitatingly slandered the entire Negro race in order to gain favor with those who are hanging, shooting, and burning Negroes alive. And just like, Frances Willard, you do not tangle with Ida B. No. Wells. Like, she will crush you. <laughs> So this episode sheds light on how radical, reform-minded women like Willard could still fall short in the quest for full equality and work for suffrage and social welfare while also supporting a racial hierarchy. Like a story as old as time when it comes to the women's rights movement, right? right? Nevertheless, Black women did participate in the WCTU when they had the power to control their own chapters. In Willard's first speech as the national WCTU president, she laid out the do-everything policy with the goal of providing some interest of reform for a variety of women. So the union organized departments, which were led by specialists in their field, women specialists. Um, So, for example, the Social Purity Committee worked to combat domestic violence and exploitation, while the Home Protection Ballot Movement supported women's suffrage. Under Do Everything, the WCTU implemented hundreds of programs across the nation. Women taught temperance to children in Sunday schools. They led movements for free public kindergartens and prison reform. WCTU members operated nurseries, Sunday schools, homeless shelters, and homes for pregnant single women and sex workers. WCTU members supported such far-reaching reforms as labor reform, suffrage, disarmament, and quote-unquote sensible clothing. That means, like, no corsets and stuff right, like right, that. It doesn't yeah. necessarily mean bloomers, but, like, right. let's not hurt your ribs because you're so corseted up that you can't breathe kind of stuff. Probably a good plan. Um, and they also uh, oppose the manufacture of cigarettes and vivisection. So pretty much you name it and yeah. there are somebody in the WCTU is, is for it. I like it. <laughs> the WCTU pushed for social purity only secondly to their push for temperance. The social purity movement in the WCTU focused on combating the double standard of sexual morality, which they argued hurt women and families. The WCTU Committee for Work with Fallen Women strove to save prostitutes through Protestant Christianity and temperance and worked closely with other rescue organizations like the Florence Crittenden Mission and the Salvation Army, both also evangelical Christian organizations. By 1885, the name and emphasis of the Committee for Work with Fallen Women changed to the Department for Social Purity. The department stressed preventative measures, including providing temporary housing for women fleeing prostitution, life-saving stations for young girls entering the city for the first time, (laughs) which is just kind of funny, and mothers' associations designed to encourage sex education for children. That's so interesting for such a Christian organization. Now, granted, they're not saying, like, this is birth control and this and this. And And this this is is the clitoris. But But what they're arguing is that girls are so naive to what sex is that when some kind of designing man comes along and is like, hey, why don't you come up to my room and let me give, I got some flowers up there. She doesn't, she has no inkling of like what's going on and all that kind of stuff. So it's more to protect her innocence. Right. Rather than like... Being like, you know, get, you go you, get your pleasure, you get girl. Yours, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. But still, I mean, but either way, it's interesting that sex education is part of the it plan. Is. It is. Right? It definitely is part mm-hmm. of it. And it's, it is fascinating. Isn't um, Laura from Nursing Cleo, didn't she do some work on sex education manuals? Yes. She, um, she wrote um, a couple, con- at least one conference paper anyway, about um, some research that she had done on 19th century sex education manuals specifically for children. Mm-hmm. And it was just fascinating because some of them were very straightforward. Yeah. And then others were like, notice how the bee goes into yeah. the flower the, and it rubs its leg on the... Yeah. 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 It, it's just really funny how they create these like very gendered, yeah. you know, imi- images. But, you know, even in the literature, um, you see people even pushing back against that. Like, mm-hmm. why are we talking to our daughters about flowers and, exactly. and bees? Right. We should be telling them what their body is. Right. And so it's, it's a, you know, again, this all kind of crisscrosses. Yeah. And it's still conversations that people have today, right? <laughs> Right. Where some Which people are, yeah. No, don't let her know what's down there. Yeah, or even just that we should have sex education at all, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. anyway. Okay. Um, wait, what was I talking about? Oh, okay. Um, 
Committee members also advocated for raising age of consent laws across America. Uh, These laws determined the age at which a girl could consent to sexual intercourse. Lower age of consent laws meant that a man only had to prove that a girl above the age had consented to sexual intercourse. Essentially, these laws protected men from charges of rape. Edward Steed's publication in the Pall Mall Gazette claiming that English gentlemen could easily procure the virginities of young girls throughout the London underground spurred the WCTU Social Purity Department to campaign for a rise in the age of consent laws in America. Stead's, did I say Stead or Steed earlier? Uh, Edward Steed's? I think you said Steed. I think you said Steed last time too. Okay. Steeds or Stead, I don't know. I don't know how you pronounce it. I'm sorry. We'll but just stick with one. Yeah, I'm sure somebody will fix that for us. Right. right? <laughs> anyway, his expose showed that English law deemed girls of 13 years old competent enough to consent to sexual intercourse. The WCTU's campaign shocked Americans by pointing out that in America, in many states, the age of consent law for girls was only 10 years of age. Gross. Yeah, I know. So advocates for raising the age of consent pointed out that girls could not marry or sell property at such a young age. Therefore, they should not be vulnerable to men who would rape them or make them prostitutes at such a young age either. Now, this, of course, is the social purity kind of like talking points, right? There's a lot of other things going on, but they're really kind of like uh, diving in on this kind of um, male as a... uh, as a seducer, right? Mm-hmm. Or like plucking these little girls into into the prostitution trade, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not not saying it didn't happen, but also I'm not saying that it did in the numbers that a lot of these social purity reformers are saying that right. it did. Exactly. Just so that yeah. is Which, clear. Yeah. Yeah. Can- is often the case. Yeah. Right? Anyway, but um, so I'll, I'll read you. So one of a feminist and social purity advocate, Helen Gardner, she was, um, you know, big in this movement. She summed it up this way, um, quote, what good can it do any human being to have the age of consent below that at which honorable marriage or the right to sell property comes to a girl? Whom is it intended to benefit? There can be but one answer. It is the law in the interest of the brothel, in the interest of the grade of men who prey upon the ignorance and helplessness of childhood. So again, there you see the the ignorance of childhood, right? So that's one of the reasons why they want to right. advocate for teaching, good, you know, yeah, sexual education so that they can't be tricked, right? Yeah, not, yeah. They, they know kind of what's going on. So the WCTU and other social purity reformers hoped that by raising the age of consent, men would stop seeking commercial sex from younger prostitutes and thus curbing the entrance of young girls into the trade in the first place. Legislative efforts to raise the age of consent were successful, and in 20 states, the legislature raised the age to 16 years old. The Social Purity Department also launched campaigns to revise prostitution, rape, and seduction laws during this period, um, mainly to protect women from an unfair judicial system. Now, whether it worked out in that case or not, you can argue social control, mm-hmm. but they did, they did re- try to reform the judicial system to be more fair in their gendered view of the world right right, right. and we'll i think we'll get into their that particular a meaning of what right their was. anglo-american yeah. gendered norm right. of women national wctu recording secretary clara cleghorn hoffman summed up this sexual double standard through the sentimental oratory popular during the time at the first international conference of women uh meeting in 1888 by saying this <clears throat> In thousands of homes, everything seems to be perfectly pure, perfectly moral, and yet hundreds go forth from these homes to swell the ranks of recognized prostitution, while thousands more go forth into the ranks of legalized prostitution under the perfectly respectable mantle of marriage. The fires of passion and lust lurk in these homes like the covered fires of Lucknow, only needing the occasion, only needing the temptation to burst forth into flame, carrying death and destruction to every pure and true and lovely attribute of heart and soul. Man, that escalated quickly. (laughs) Started out like in every home and then it's like, fire! (laughs) 
Oh my god! Oh, nineteenth century. And so you know nice. what? And I should. I I think I don't I didn't like describe the double the sexual double standard really, but essentially they're saying like but that's what she's trying to sum up there, right? right? So a woman has sex one time, she's ruined goods, right? She's ruined her family, mm-hmm. and the only option left to her is prostitution, mm-hmm. right? Right. So that's what they're saying. Like these little girls, they're being tricked, they're being raped, and then they're used goods. And they're, you know, and so they have to become prostitutes. Like, right. that's this, like, cycle that they're talking about. Right. Right. And this other part where she's saying, while thousands more go forth into the ranks of legalized prostitution, is she, is she talking about She's men? talking about marriage. She is talking about marriage. So she yeah. is very much a feminist. Like, she yeah. is very much, That, like, like women are being exploited like, in marriage by right. husbands who are, like, Still full of lust. Still full and of lust. And that's why they are, just need that temptation going to out. explode. Yeah, so, like, their husbands are going out, they're having prostitutes, but they okay. also have a, quote-unquote, kept prostitute at home. Because, essentially, you've just sold yourself. They get everything. They yeah, get you, their cake and they get to eat it, too. Right. Yeah. The, the guy gets the cake and they eat it, too. But the woman has also just sold herself to a man, right? Yeah. She, she's trading sex to him yeah. for domesticity, for so taking care of his thing home. as prostitution. So, that, so, in a way, she's talking about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see that, you see that in not a lot but in quite a few Mm -hmm. of like feminist writings during this time yeah yeah yeah. that's great anyway i mean i I mean that's great in that it's a really powerful statement right mary g charlton edholm superintendent for press work of the wctu railed against women and girls sexual exploitation in her book traffic and girls um and she wrote about this one court case which is a little harrowing so quote the unsuspecting child followed him carried away with the dream of the promised presence the door opened the bolt turned the screams of the child availed not she left the room robbed of her virginity and started on the path of prostitution so there you go exactly kind of what i was talking right, about right mm-hmm. so ed holmes anecdote it grossly highlighted how the double standard operated in a legal system with low age of consent laws the girl was raped and no longer a virgin making her you know quote unquote spoiled for the marriage market the low age of consent law prevented her from having any redress in court um, Ed Holm wrote, had she any redress? No, for the man would swear that he had, she had accompanied him of her own free will, hoping to get the jewelry. And even though she did not understand what he wanted with her, the judge and jury themselves, fathers of little girls, would hold the child guilty and the man innocent. If you ask why they would so hold, or, you know, so rule in that way, the answer is that the child was over the age which the state at that time assumed to protect little children from the lust of men. So these laws operated within a penal system that did weigh a woman's testimony as less credible than a man's, um, even if a charge of rape could be brought, uh, unless a girl Kind of pretty much died yeah. in the like process of trying to fight him off. Right, um, her innocence was questionable. Yeah, right. And this was something that I talked about, or we talked about in our episode on rape mm-hmm. in early America. That exact idea that like really the only way that women could um, could prove, prove rape that it was rape and not you know consent gone wrong or right. a, a you know accusation of you know an unfounded accusation of rape i should say mm-hmm. was if they basically killed themselves in the process right, right? and that right. goes all the way back to ancient rome and ideas of what what's the woman's name uh, now i'm not gonna be able to think of it now but there's a a famous um story about a woman in rome who's raped by like her husband and father's enemies and she comes in and is like, hey, these guys raped me. And then she kills herself in front of them. Oh, and that's what, is, like... Yeah, who is that? Who is that? It's, it starts with an L. Okay, because I was thinking of somebody else, so never mind. Maybe I don't it's know like, who you're talking about. All I can think of is... I, oh, Lucretia. Lucretia. Oh, Lucretia. Okay, because mm-hmm. I'm thinking yeah. Lysistrata, and that's not it. Yeah, yeah. Lucretia, mm-hmm. yes. So... If you're if you're interested in in learning much more about this issue and hearing the full story of Lucretia, go listen to that episode. And I something else that you mentioned reminded me. You've been talking a lot about seduction, mm-hmm. um, and Marissa did an episode on seduction a while back as well. So because seduction was a real thing, it wasn't just like "Hey, baby," right? Like no, seduction it was, was like, like a, a crime, a legal, yes, yeah, like a. And she or you're Elizabeth. 
Marissa did a really good job of sort of explaining that. So these situations pushed many WCTU members to call for female oversight in the courts and prisons. This rested on the idea that women were more virtuous and moral. So if they were part of the penal system, this kind of corruption just would not occur. Reformers argued that police matrons were better suited to protect women and girls within the court system and would be there to intervene if the woman or girl was a potential candidate for a reform organization. The WCTU uh, supported the use of police matrons, arguing they were an excellent way to intervene in the lives of women arrested for prostitution or public drunkenness. They succeeded in having police matrons hired in several cities between 1876 and 1888. WCTU and Florence Crittenden volunteers were a common fixture in women's and juvenile courts, wearing ribbons printed with the words, Florence Crittenden home, can I help you? (laughs) Or a member of the White Cross Crusade or whatever, you know, to show that they were there to help. Although most middle-class social purity reformers operated under the sometimes false assumption that the only reason women and girls would enter sex work was because of trickery or abduction or seduction, Mm -hmm. they still were advocating for laws that would protect women and girls from men. So here again is this idea of radical conservatism. So protecting the virtue or morality of women from the corruption of men so that those impressionable and vulnerable women can go on to be good wives and mothers. This motto of do everything, so they were for suffrage, Mm -hmm. they were against child labor, they were part of the social purity movement, not necessarily because they were prudes, but out of a feminist consciousness that women were being exploited. Right. Right. So it's just this weird back and forth, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and feminist in different ways than we conceive of feminists today, but nonetheless. And even during the time, a white, Anglo, native-born feminist, right? right? So there were different kinds of feminisms even during the time. So I'm talking specifically about the majority of WCTU members specifically. Right, yeah. I don't want to give the impression there's like one feminism. No, of course, right. It's just, it's interesting to know sort of how all of this is complicated and tied up together and all that. So this often, uh, as you can probably expect, met fierce resistance as what protected women and girls often endangered the longstanding prerogatives of men. For example, in Iowa in 1888, in response to pressure from the WCTU, the Iowa Assembly raised the age of consent from 10 to 13 years of age. Oh, wow. Uh, Gross. Those against the measure argued that the increased age made men, quote, liable to imprisonment for life for yielding to the solicitation of a prostitute. That's gross. That is super gross. In another instance, men argued that, quote, there are wild and bad and perverted girls who would lay traps for inexperienced boys who are not over 18 years of age and by threats thereafter blackmail them into marriage. Ooh, a different kind of seduction, right? <laughs> right. So essentially arguing that men would be entrapped by designing women, right? Does that sound familiar? Essentially, opponents argued that raising the age of consent would curtail men's freedom when it came to having sex with whoever they wanted. These types of social purity reforms were liberal in their quest for a single standard of morality for both men and women, yet conservative in its insistence to enforce white, middle-class, Protestant notions of sexual morality on the public at large. As early as 1874, Willard supported women's suffrage, quote, for God and home and native land, and proposed to then WCTU President Wittenmeyer that a proposal be made at the annual convention in 1876 to support suffrage. In this first iteration, Willard proposed female suffrage only for issues touching the home, temperance and education. However, by 1881, as the common understanding of the scope of issues affecting women expanded, the home protection ballot evolved into a universal call for women's suffrage, even when women's right to vote was still a radical cause among many Americans. For the next 20 years, WCTU members served as the grassroots for the suffrage movement, even though not all local WCTU chapters accepted the suffrage resolution. 
Some chapters ignored it completely, while others pushed for state and federal constitutional amendments to allow women the right to vote. The Nebraska state chapter sent a petition to the United States House of Representatives, um, and this is a pretty cool uh, just document. I've got the, the uh, link here if you want to check it out. It says, quote, as wives, mothers, and citizens, we know our rights and will defend them peacefully, if we can, with severe measures, if we must. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is actually in support for an 1886 House bill that proposed uh, a constitutional amendment to prohibit disenchant- disenfranchisement on the basis of sex. In Nebraska, specifically? or in No, the, this in... was to the U.S. House of Representatives. Because, oh, you know, I mean, there's bills that come before the House, like, yeah. all the time. Like, yeah. just because, you know, things happen, like, when they happen, there's right. there's all kinds of bills that don't go through. But, yeah, so it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. So it's, like, on the .gov site or That's whatever. That's awesome. So, anyway, the link's there. I like that idea that we'll take we'll do it severe measures. We'll do it but we yeah. will take severe. So then you wonder, like, are they talking about taking up arms? Are they right, talking right. about um, a sex strike? Like, right. what do they mean? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So how did women like Frances Willard push back against people that thought women had no place in politics? She presented herself as a mild-mannered conservative woman. 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 She presented herself as a mild-mannered conservative woman, but many of her ideas were distinctly radical for her day, and she and other WCTU reformers were successful in transforming these radical issues into mainstream platforms. One way she did this was to emphasize the piety inherent in her activism, insisting her crusade was essentially under the authority of divine direction. She wrote in her autobiography, quote, While upon my knees alone there was born in upon my mind, as I believe, from loftier regions, the declaration, you are to speak for a woman's ballot as a weapon of protection to her home and tempted loved one from the tyranny of drink. And then there flashed through my mind a complete line of argument and illustration. So Willard is essentially saying that God or Jesus, like it's not clear exactly who she's specifying is telling her this, but, you know, either way, someone, some divine entity is basically telling her that she must do this reform work, that, you know, he wants her to spread this gospel. Right. And also to counter charges that she was acting unwomanly, Willard and others embraced the so-called womanly virtues so integral to understandings of 19th century white middle class, namely love of home and family. So Willard and other WCT reformers' radicalism was always couched in the understanding that these reforms were for the protection of the home. This was imbued with a type of Christian piety. Scholars Carlin Coors Campbell and Patricia Bizzle both argued that the sermon-like qualities of Willard's speeches and activism hearkened to Methodist ministers and, quote, induced in their hearers an emotional experience to religious conversion. Bizzle goes further to argue that Willard's speeches hit a chord among a large swath of middle-class white women who would have recognized the type of womanly spiritual ethos associated with lay Methodist women orators. After all, Methodism at the time was the largest religious denomination in early 19th century America. And even if not Methodist oneself, most Protestant women were familiar with the Protestant rhetorical style that Willard utilized. So it shouldn't be lost on our listeners that the majority of women reformers and women's rights leaders in the 19th century were deeply influenced and indebted to evangelical Christianity. And this really was religious and religious women acting radically. Willard was a theologian, so to speak. She was raised a devout Methodist and understood her faith as a central tenet to her lifelong struggle for women's rights. In 1888, she published Women in the Pulpit, which expanded on her analysis of gender and the interpretation of biblical scripture. She argued that most pastors used literal biblical interpretations to subjugate women and argued this was done in the same way that Southern antebellum pastors had used the Bible to defend slavery. Willard believed that the only way to counteract the deleterious male viewpoints was to have more female theologians. Right on, sister. 
She wrote, quote, we need women commentators to bring out the women's side of the book. We need the stereoscopic view of truth in general, which can only be had when woman's eye and man's together shall discern the perspectives of the Bible's full orbed revelation. Elizabeth Cady Stanton gets on this kick late in her life, right? Like she, she doesn't does. she write the women's Bible? She does. And she asked Willard to uh, write in it and Willard declined. Because Willard was going to like write her own thing? Willard was going to write her own thing, but Willard also did not agree with with mm-hmm. Stanton's viewpoint at the yeah, time. Yeah, I remember that, that Stanton like had a hard time getting that book written and published. Like she thought that it was going to be brilliant and like a big hit and lots of the new wave of women were like, eh. Yeah. Eh. Yeah. There, there was, she had, I think she was a little too radical in, mm-hmm. in a sense. Um, Stanton was. Stanton was. Yeah. 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 Um, and unfortunately I don't remember like the, the ins and outs of that. Yeah. But, no, yeah. but I, it just is an interesting, um, I think it's an, a, an important point to make that this was something that l- other, other reformers, reformers or, and yeah. feminists were thinking right. also, Still couched in Christianity, but also kind of calling out Christianity and saying, like, we need to do better in understanding the Bible. Like, it's not as simple as saying, like, women are destructive eves, <coughs> right? Right. Um, like, we need to have women's viewpoint if we're really going to understand If we're really going to understand mm-hmm. it, right. So Willard avoided specifically calling for women to be preachers, right, against kind of the Pauline um, dictate or whatever you call it. I'm, how do you say it? Like Paul, like Paul says, women cannot be preachers. Oh yeah. So what do you call it? Pauline dictate. Sure. Pauline, sure. Paul's the worst. <laughs> no, Paul's right. fascinating, but, but she, he says a bunch of stupid. Things. Right. So she, you know, she she specifically specifically um, does not say like women should be preachers. Right. right? They're lay orators. They're the, you know that mm-hmm, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. She's not saying that they should be preachers in the technical sense, but she is advocating for women's contributions to biblical understandings. Right. So she writes, "quote It is men who have taken." the simple, loving, tender gospel of the New Testament so suited to be the proclamation of a woman's lips and translated it in terms of sacerdotalism, dogma, and martyrdom. It is men who have given us the dead letter rather than the living gospel. The mother heart of God will never be known to the world unless translated into terms of speech by mother hearted women. Mm. Law and love will never balance in the realm of grace until a woman's hand shall hold the scales. Like that's that's interesting. Yeah. This idea of a mother heart, the mother heart of God. Yeah. Like that today is, I I think it's in some circles much more common, but it's still super, super, super controversial. Sure. Like, even referring, like, I've heard some pastors refer to God as, like, mother, father, God, mm-hmm. or, you know, God as woman in a way. And, like, that is... That's a no-no That is a no-no no for some people. Yeah, absolutely. That would absolutely. be a no-no for the righteous gemstones. They would not be for that. Yeah, FYI, that doesn't surprise so me. You should watch that show. <laughs> Willard viewed this as part of her all-encompassing view of women's rights and argued... That, quote, the right to preach is but one phase of a larger question, the rights of woman as woman. In the late 1880s, Willard became more involved in the American labor movement and in 1893 proclaimed herself a Christian socialist. Historian Mary Jo Boole, who wrote a pivotal book on women socialists in 19th century America, argues that Willard championed Christian socialism as, quote, the grandest expression of woman's instinct for moral perfection, even if by 1900 the romanticism of Willard's heroic vision of social change had come to seem out of step with the realism that was increasingly championed by American socialists. Many commentators have pointed out that the radicalism of the WCTU faded after Willard's death. Yes, more conservative women stayed in the WCTU into the 20th century, and more of the radical members moved into newer activist organizations, like those working exclusively for women's suffrage. So for many, the WCTU did act as a stepping stone for more progressive reforms in the lives of many activist women, while in the other case, it buoyed, you know, conservative Mm -hmm. roles or whatever. So this kind of argument of like, was the WCTU, you know, this stepping stone to like a broader feminism, like I I think it's still up to debate. And I think um, 
you had mentioned her um, a little while ago, but Phyllis Shafley, right? Yes. This, yes. I mean, I was she would of her never, a lot she would this. never call herself a feminist, no. right? But she is, you know, she is a radical conservative, right? right? She is out there, you know, in the public sphere, yeah. like, you know, having her own opinions, but yet mm-hmm. fighting for these very, um, you know, quote unquote conservative or right. quote unquote con- traditional right. roles, and, right? And doing so in ways that are only possible for her because, <laughs> because of the of strides feminism. of feminism, right? right? <laughs> I mean, Phyllis Schlafly is, is out there talking about how women, you know, deserve the right to, you know, stay home with their children and all these mm-hmm. things that the ERA is going to ruin while she is not at home with her children, right? right? right, right. I mean, and she's very political. She's very public. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Phyllis Schlafly is, is a... She's a fascinating, fascinating figure yeah. in and of herself, yeah. um, but and very different from Francis Willard. Like, yeah, not no, absolutely, not yeah, same. not not want to say say that they're the same at all, but right. just just this. I I love this idea of radical conservatism, and mm-hmm. that is from um, Parsons. And oh my God, I'm yeah. I think her book is called Lost Manhood. Um, mm. So I really I really Ooh, like that sounds. I really great. like I've her not read that it. book. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, you know, something else I didn't write about, but Willard um, became a very big advocate for the bicycle. I did know that. Life. I yeah, did know she that. She learned to ride a bike when she was like, I don't know. I think I love it. I think they say like forty, which is like, oh my god, it's so old. You know, I'm like, oh, big deal. <laughs> but it would be so hard to learn yeah, how to ride a bike. I can't now. do it now. Your rickety old bones. <laughs> but yeah, so she she is she's she's interesting, you know. Yeah. And and too, I like this idea of like, how can somebody be so quote unquote progressive mm-hmm. and yet so retroactive in their like yeah. racial views, right? Yeah. And that's like a big thing with a lot of these women reformers during yes. this time and the suffrage movement in general. Right. Like how could they be, you know, so pro pro women's rights and mm-hmm. so racist. Yeah. You know? I actually just organically this came up in one of my classes today. One of my students sort of made the point was saying something about Susan B. Anthony and said like, you know, lots of people try to sound, try to say that Susan B. Anthony was racist. And it was such an interesting moment in the class because like most of the other students were like record screech. Like, (laughs) wait, no, Susan B. Anthony actually was racist. And the student was like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess she was kind of racist. And we were like, okay, like let's unpack this for a second because it is hard because these these women these are supposed to be your heroes. They, yeah, and they also did some great stuff. Right. But right. they also did like said because some Because they are stuff. humans. Right. And that's why I'm so against like this like yeah. putting people on pedestals and stuff yeah. like that. Like, yeah. And and also trashing people completely. Right. Like, they are human We can't beings. just like throw human Susan beings B. Anthony in times. the trash bin. Yeah. But we do have to be honest and open and grapple with the things that she said and the, you know, mm-hmm. and Francis Willard and, you know, and, and a lot of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're going to go. This was actually the second time yes. we recorded this episode <laughs> because the last time we did it, we didn't press record. Yeah. So we recorded for 45 minutes and then had an epic <laughs> meltdown like little babies and threw our phones. Oh, I and, thought I was going to jump out the window. Yeah. But we made Avril turn it on this time. Yeah, we made her push the button. So I see red. it the whole time. So I think we're good. You might notice that we are the two that don't do any of the audio editing. <laughs> so we don't actually know how any of this stuff works. <laughs> yep. All right. So thank you guys so much for uh, watching, for listening. You can follow us on Twitter. That's the main place we're at. And then we mm-hmm. also have a Facebook group mm-hmm. called Dig His. What is it called? Dig History Pod Squad. The yeah. easiest way to find us is to just search it in your search bar on Facebook and just request to join. And Marissa will swing into action and add you to the group um, eventually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but feel free to leave us a five star review that helps us reach yes, other listeners. And we will see you next time. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. So one of uh, Diocletian's speeches, which he gave over 300 times across the country, uh, not very innovative speaker, was a temperance lecture. Time before internet. You could right. do that. You could just do it over and over again. Uh, was it, this was, <laughs> sorry. Historians disagree as to how this mo, as to how this mo, movement, movement. <laughs> throughout the pages of her best-selling novel, Eola Leroy, Leroy.
I wanted the last time. I want it to be Leroy. I don't know why. Okay. And translated it into terms of sacerdotalism. Sure. You said this word the other day. I did not. Sacerdotalism. Early to mid 1890s African American. Historian. (laughs) Sorry. However, the visibility of an upwardly mobile black middle class. why can't I get this out? Oh my God. That's because my writing is checked. <laughs> no, I just can't say socialist. Socialist. Holy crap, I could not get that out. <laughs> I think that sounds stilted. Even though not all local WCTG. Blip, 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 blip. <laughs> the ties between Protestant evangelicalism. Evangel- is that how- Evangelicism? Evangelicism? Okay. I don't know. Is that a word? Maybe I don't know. It's underlined. Maybe I'm making up a word. I know that there are different ways of referring to it, so I don't. I actually don't You're know. Christian, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not an evangelical. Evangelicism? Evangelical. The ties between Protestant... Evangelism or evangelicalism? I know, she's cooking food. What I is want that? Some. 